Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for turning up at what feels like 6.30 on a Saturday morning, I'm sure, after your Friday night. We're incredibly glad you're here. Uh, this is a true star-studded cast, and I think this is an attestation to the University of Virginia and to the reunions that we've got two of the very, very top people in the administration here with us today. Bill Kors, the Deputy Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services. Francis Collins is the Director of the National Institutes of Health. To their left, your right, Marge Sidebottom is our UVA Director of Emergency Preparedness, and Stephen Dikoski is the and I'm, it's always fun to say the new dean of the School of Medicine. I was the new dean of the School of Medicine for all of my five years. In Mr. Jeff, as you know, in Mr. Jefferson's world, unless you've been here 300 years, you're new. So I'm the new provost, and uh, I'm happy to be here with you. I, I'm, you know, when you get people of this caliber, you do one of two things with introductions. You either take the entire time of an hour and a half and you introduce everybody down to where they went to grade school or you simply say we are so happy that Bill Corr is going to lead off and Bill we're happy you're here. Thank you Tim. Uh, it is truly an honor to have the opportunity to come back and speak as a part of this reunion. But first um, I think it's important to acknowledge what you all may not know is that uh, Tim recently announced that he will be leaving the university next year. Uh, he'll be uh, pursuing his passion for health care and policy. He'll be the senior vice president of health policy and health systems at the University of Texas Health Science Center, as well as the director of the New York-based Dreyfus Health Foundation. Tim, it's a huge loss for the university. Thank you for your many, many years of contributions that have benefited all of us uh, as alumni as well. I also uh, have to begin by acknowledging my colleague, Francis Collins. Uh, Francis' contributions to science and the health of people all over the world uh, makes him nothing short than a national treasure. A lot has changed since the graduation of 1970, which was the class I was in. Back then, some of you will remember, there were no undergraduate women. Uh, men wore coats and ties uh, to class and went to Saturday classes. We used typewriters. And in our first-year dorms, some of you will remember that the only telephone was a phone on the wall at the end of the hall. Imagine our children having to deal with that. <laughs> at least two things haven't changed in the last 40 years. Uh, the first is the first-year dorms, if you haven't gone back to look at them. Uh, and the other is a broad consensus that we need major changes in health care in America. I recently saw a New York Times story with the headline, Need to Reshape Healthcare is Seen. The article quoted a commission on health care in America which uh, wrote this sentence, unless we improve the system through which health care is provided, care will continue to become less satisfactory, even though there are massive increases in cost. It accurately describes our situation in 2010, but it was written in 1969. So when President Obama came to office last year, 
We had been talking about trying to reform our health care system for more than four decades. In 1974, some of you will remember that President Richard Nixon proposed a national health insurance program. The Democrats didn't think it was good enough, and they killed it. In 1994, President Bill Clinton, the Democratic president, tried to pass national health insurance, and the Republicans killed it. So 40 years later, here are just a few reasons why health reform wasn't imperative for President Obama. The U.S. spends considerably more on health care than any other developed nation, $2.1 trillion. We spend twice the average of the next 10 richest countries, and we get worse results. As Secretary of HHS Kathleen Sebelius often says, we pay more, we live sicker, and we die younger. <clears throat> Each year from 2000 to 2008, the percent of Americans with employer-provided health insurance declined. About 50 million Americans have no health insurance at all. And in 2009, 15,000 people lost their health insurance every day. So what does the Affordable Care Act, that's the title of the health reform legislation that was passed in March of this year, what does it actually do to reform our health care system? There has been so much misinformation and truly insufferable political partisanship it's understandable that many in the public really aren't sure. The Affordable Care Act is designed to ensure that all Americans have access to quality, affordable care and that we significantly reduce long-term health care costs. In the very short time I have, I want to try to factually describe a few of the key features of the legislation with an eye on addressing the often stated claim that this is a government takeover of our health care system. The Affordable Care Act builds on our existing health care system, that is, on private insurance, Medicare, and Medicaid, to cover 32 million more Americans and at the same time ensure that all of us have the health insurance that we need. Here's how it does it. First, it maintains our current employer-based insurance coverage which is typically the best coverage that Americans have. There are about 150 million Americans who get their health care through their employer. No one is required to change their coverage or change their doctor. The foundation of our health care system, which is our employer-based system, does not change. In addition, the Affordable, Recovery, Affordable Care Act adds to our insurance system by making private insurance more available for individuals in small groups. They are the people who have the most difficult time because their policies are so expensive. The law creates new one-stop health insurance marketplaces in each state called exchanges, much like the Federal Employees Health Benefits Plan that I have the opportunity to participate in. So if you're an individual or a small business, it gives you one place you go to find all the plans in your area and to compare prices. In essence, it allows small groups to band together to be a big group and get favorable insurance rates. There are premium and cost-sharing credits for those estimated 3 million people who are above poverty but may not be able to afford health insurance. It creates the basic rule that if you are above or near poverty, you should pay no more than 9.5% of your gross income on health insurance. 
It also provides tax credits for small businesses, an estimated four million we expect will take advantage of it. If you're fewer than 25 employees, there are tax credits to help with the cost of providing health insurance to your employees. So that's basically how the law increases the availability of private insurance, but it also strengthens private insurance to make it secure and fair. Some new protections are in place. No more rescissions. An insurance company cannot drop you when you get sick. No more lifetime or, or annual caps on the benefits so your insurance doesn't disappear when you really need it. The law guarantees the issuance of insurance, which means that insurers can't turn you away if you have a health condition. And for those of us in the class of 70, that's becoming increasingly an issue. There's a, this is especially important for people our age. According to the latest data from 2006, more than 25% of Americans between the age of 60 and 64 who applied for health insurance were rejected. Under this law, every American will be able to get health insurance. And insurance companies, and women listen to this, insurance companies will not be able to charge you more because of your health status. And you may not know it, but being a woman is a pre-existing condition. And you pay more for the same health insurance. Family history, occupation, doesn't matter. There's one, one rate. To make these reforms work, the law also requires everyone to have insurance. This is the shared responsibility provision that requires all of us to have insurance. The reason is that if sick people come into the system only when they're sick, if we don't bring the healthy people into the system, it will raise the price for all of us. That's private insurance. Next, the Affordable Care Act expands Medicaid and the Children's Health Insurance Program to assure that the coverage of all individuals and families with low income. The basic rule is that any individual or family with an income of up to 133% of poverty, which for a family of four, excuse me, is, for a family of four is $29,300, they would be eligible for Medicaid and the federal government will pick up 90% of the cost. Finally, the Affordable Care Act strengthens Medicare for seniors. It preserves every single guaranteed Medicare benefit. It adds preventive services, provides for better access to primary care doctors, and gradually closes the Medicare prescription drug donut hole. Those of you who are near Medicare know what that is. It's the part when you've when you paid over $2,700, uh, Medicare stops providing any support for your uh, prescription drugs until you get to over 6,000. The Affordable Care Act closes that by 2020. And importantly, the Affordable Care Act will shore up Medicare's finances by extending the life of the Medicare Trust Fund for 12 years. As I mentioned in the beginning, some people have described the law as a government takeover of health insurance. Let me show you some graphs whoops, that uh, just very quickly try to make this point. This graph does not include Medicare because we didn't change eligibility for Medicare. So in 2010, 150 million Americans roughly, this is all from the Congressional Budget Office, 150 million Americans have employer, the red, have employer provided care. 40 million 
the navy blue, but the dark blue, have Medicaid and CHIP. 50 million, the purple, are uninsured. And 27 million fit into a category that's the disabled, it's individuals who have their own policies. Look what happens. In 2014, the Affordable Care Act really goes into effect. Five years after the Affordable Care Act goes into effect, employers have grown from 150 to 159. Medicaid has grown from 40 to 51. The light blue, 24, is the health exchange. Do you remember all the fight over the public option, that it was going to take over the entire uh, health insurance system? That's how many people are projected to be in the exchange. We still, unfortunately, will have 22 million, the purple, that are uninsured. And the last segment, the 25, are, again, individuals and uh, those who are disabled. So going from 150 million in the employer market to 159 with the exchanges growing is, in essence, what the Affordable Care Act does. And I think there's uh, no way to argue that this is a government takeover of health insurance. The Affordable Care Act builds on uh, what we have today, but as I mentioned, the major provisions don't go into effect until 2014. So the Affordable Care Act takes several important steps to fill some critical gaps that exist today. Starting later this year, your dependents, your adult children up to the age of 26, will be allowed to stay on your health insurance policy. We have a daughter, third year here at the university. Next year when she graduates, she would be off of our policy. With this new law, she'll be able to stay on. If a child has a pre-existing condition, an insurance company cannot deny them coverage. If an adult has a pre-existing condition and no insurance for the last six months, there's a temporary subsidized high-risk insurance pool to provide them coverage until we get to 2014. There's a temporary reinsurance program to help companies that provide health care for early retirees, 55 to 64. There's some support for those companies so that those retirees don't wind up with no insurance. And small businesses can get tax credits to offset the cost of keeping health insurance for their employees. I know I'm going fast, but time is short, so let me switch to uh, some other important provisions in the Affordable Care Act. It supports innovation and improvement in our health care workforce, in our payment systems, in the quality of our delivery systems, and in the information we provide doctors and consumers. For example, just a couple, it invests in quality and payment reforms like reducing payments to hospitals with high rates of preventable health care-associated infections, which occur in the hospital, and kill tens of thousands of Americans a year, more than die in car accidents. It uh, provides new demonstrations of payment, like the concept of bundling, which gives one payment to hospitals and doctors and outpatient facilities to provide the follow-up care so that they have an incentive to work together to make sure that you get the right care when you leave the hospital and don't return. It encourages new models of coordinated care, so-called accountable care organizations, where doctors' incomes will be based on quality, not on the quantity of service, and they will be able to keep the difference if they provide care for less cost. The Affordable Care Act also contains some very key cost reforms. 
In fact, 40 economists, including three Nobel laureates, said in a letter, quote, these measures are a serious, multifaceted initiative to improve the quality and efficiency of American health medical care, rein in the fastest growing portion of government and private budgets, and provide a valuable platform for future cost control efforts. Let me give you two examples. The law establishes an independent payment advisory board to make recommendations to Congress about how to strengthen Medicare and reduce long-term costs. Congress is required to accept them unless it votes specifically to reject them. It removes, the goal is to remove the politics from the recommendations about how to change uh, our Medicare programs. Another example is it provides major new authorities to address fraud and abuse in the system. Believe it or not, organized crime is now infiltrating our health care payment systems. Altogether, the Congressional Budget Office estimates that this legislation will reduce the federal deficit by more than $100 billion over the next 10 years and by more than $1 trillion over the next decade. That's the Congressional Budget Office, not the administration. And what these changes mean is that as we're covering 32 million new, uh, 32 million Americans with new insurance coverage, we will also be strengthening our health care system so that all of us get better care. In closing, let me just tell you that we know very well that health care is about people. It's about the mom who skips her next round of chemotherapy because her insurance policy has an annual cap. It's about the factory worker who puts off retirement because he or she has diabetes and if they quit, they will not be able to get private health insurance. It's about the entrepreneur who can't offer health insurance to their few new employees in their new business because small groups pay exorbitant insurance rates. And it's about parents like me who believe that we need to reduce our long-term debt from health care costs so that our children have the same opportunities that we've had. The Affordable Care Act puts us on a new course. It is not a magic pill. It will take time for all of its benefits to kick in, and there will need to be revisions and adjustments along the way. But this is a new day, and we are on an historic new path to improving our health care system and our health. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. I tell you, audience, the way we're going to do this is we will each go through uh, a few minutes of discussion and then uh, of our talks, and then we'll have discussion at the end. Dr. Collins. Well, it is a great pleasure to be here with all of you this morning, and I have the fondest feelings uh, for the University of Virginia and even for this very space. I came to UVA as a 16-year-old in 1966. Uh, yeah, put on that coat and tie, came here at 8 o'clock in the morning for a calculus class that was over there somewhere. But that first week, I also came to this space, and I sat in one of those chairs up there for the first time, heard a string quartet play the most amazing classical music. And I was a fan of classical music, but I'd never actually heard a concert in the real sense that one can in a place like this. Uh, I was fortunate uh, to be here and mentored by many uh, remarkable leaders and teachers. 
maybe most notably Carl Trindle, who was my first research advisor. I was a chemistry major, and of course he's now here as the master of Brown College. So I have many uh, affections for this place, and I feel very fortunate as a son of Virginia, having grown up near Stanton, uh, to have had the chance to attend such a remarkable place for, at the time, such an amazing uh, good price. I think tuition was $912 my <laughs> first year. And I was the youngest of four boys, and they kind of ran out of the college money when they got to me. So it's a good thing it was $912. I'm also really uh, pleased uh, to be able uh, to be on this panel with other distinguished speakers uh, that you will hear uh, in a moment from, from Steve and Marge, and uh, certainly, Tim, your service to this university is just remarkable, and I know you will be much missed, and I know everybody's glad you're not walking out the door for another year or so. And Bill, uh, it is just a great privilege to serve in an administration that has such a dedicated public servant as you. Bill and I interact a lot about issues that relate to health care and medical research, as the Deputy Secretary, uh, he is one of those people who gets charged with an amazing number of tasks. That, that, uh, that bill he just told you about, the health care reform bill, uh, when I heard uh, counted up those 2,700 pages, there are about 3,000 places where it says, the Secretary shall. And that means the Secretary of HHS. And so as Kathleen Sebelius is going down that list, so okay, the Secretary shall. Who's going to do that one? Bill? So uh, this is one incredibly dedicated uh, public servant, and it really is a, a privilege to serve with him. Well, in trying to figure out what I might say in 15 minutes on this topic, I started out with this, well, I'm going to have this grand picture of where my biomedical research is going. And I tried that out on Diane, and she said, you're going to overwhelm them. In 15 minutes, it's just going to be a laundry list. That won't work. So pick something. So I decided I would pick personalized medicine as a subset of the exciting things that are going on. Uh, and talk a bit about that, which means that I don't get a chance to talk about stem cell research, which is incredibly exciting right now, or some of the global health efforts that are underway, new technologies and imaging, uh, opportunities for health economics research, all that. I'm just going to talk about personalized medicine, and we'll see if in the conversations that follow whether people want to go in other ways. So personalized medicine is uh, coming along rather quickly, but there's a lot of confusion about what it is and what it isn't. Much of this is, in fact, spurred on by the success of the Human Genome Project, and this is an interesting moment in history because it is almost exactly 10 years ago that I stood next to President Clinton along with Craig Venter, and the announcement was made that we had a draft of our own human DNA instruction book, those three billion letters uh, that we all carry around that uh, carry out basically all of the biological properties that our bodies are, are requiring uh, from us and the ability to actually read out that script for the first time and to have it placed into a public database was a pretty significant milestone 10 years ago, June 2000. Well, a lot has happened since then, and a lot of that is what's now spurring on these discussions about personalized medicine. One of the things that happened is the technology for doing this DNA sequencing thing has just rocketed forward. You've heard of Moore's Law for computers, which is to say that about every two years, a computer speed goes up by a factor of two. Look at the red curve here. That is actually the cost of doing DNA sequencing. In this case, the cost of reading out a million DNA letters or base pairs. It is wildly outstripping Moore's Law. So we are now seeing the increase in speed and the decrease in cost at breathtaking rates. So that 
While that first human genome uh, cost approximately $400 million for that one sequence, uh, you can now get yours done today for about $10,000, and in the next three or four years, that will drop to less than $1,000. And at that point, it will become very compelling to have that information obtained on each of us once and for all, carefully protected by privacy, placed in your medical record, and available for use when it might be influential in decisions about your care. So let me uh, say a little bit about what we have learned that makes that kind of reality begin to come true. One of the things we've discovered is where are all the places in the genome where there are spelling differences that place people at risk for common diseases. We did pretty well in the 1990s finding the genetic causes of rare diseases that are inherited in strongly genetic ways, things like cystic fibrosis or Huntington's disease. But what about diabetes or heart disease or the common cancers or age-related macular degeneration? Those we knew were very messy in their inheritance, but the tools now provided by understanding the genome have made it possible to tackle those too. And I'm just going to show you the consequences as I build up on this diagram. You're looking at a cartoon of the human chromosomes, 1 through 22, and then the X and the Y down there in the lower right. In 2005, for the first time, with this set of tools about the whole genome, it was possible to map a strong genetic contribution to a common disease. And it was macular degeneration, and it's that red button right there on chromosome 1. And it revealed a completely different kind of molecular mechanism for this eye problem than we had ever imagined. Turned out it was the complement system that's involved. That has led to some fairly revolutionary ideas about how to prevent and treat the disease. But that was the first one. Now watch and see what happens. I'm going to build this diagram up as more and more groups began to apply genomics to trying to uncover the causes of autoimmune diseases, of diabetes, of heart disease, of mental illnesses, of asthma, you name it. Each one of the colors here is a different disease. 2006, three more of these popped up. Now in 2007, things really got going. Each of those balloons there is another discovery of a well-validated genetic variant associated with a common disease. We'll keep building that as we go. 2008, a pretty good year. Uh, 2009, it keeps going. 2000, that's the end of 2009, and here is my most recent view of this. This is April 1st of this year, and this will continue. So hundreds now of these well-validated variations in the genome that play a role in common disease. Most of those have a rather modest effect on risk. We still haven't discovered a lot of the heritability, but these point you towards molecular mechanisms that we had no idea about, and most of them are utterly surprising. And every one of those is a potential new drug target for disease. So the therapeutic implications of this are substantial. Cancer is another place where the genome revolution is resulting in just remarkable new insights, because cancer is, after all, a disease of the genome. It comes about because of misspellings in DNA, either inherited or acquired during life. But until recently, we haven't had the ability to be comprehensive in looking at a cancer cell and figuring out all of the things that have gone wrong there. A tumor generally doesn't have just one glitch in it. It has a whole bunch. And if you knew the whole array, then you'd have a much better idea about how that good cell has gone bad and what you could do about it. So now with a project called the Cancer Genome Atlas, we are tackling the 20 most common cancers. For each of those, finding tumor samples from 500 cases and matched blood DNA from the same individuals and looking at the entire genome. 
And the revelations that have already come out of this in the first couple of examples, brain tumors and ovarian cancers, are breathtaking. It turns out that we have really not understood these diseases at the level that we now can, that they're not monolithic. They have subsets within them that are going to have very different responses to therapy. And, of course, we're discovering entirely new pathways that are involved in cancer that make for exciting new drug targets. And this is the best chance we've had in a long time to revolutionize our approach to therapy, to get beyond the carpet-bombing approach to cancer and go for the magic uh, bullets that will actually go right to the heart of the problem. Drug uh, effects as well. Genetic variations do play a role in why it is that when you give somebody what was supposed to be the right drug at the right dose, it doesn't always go well. Here's an example, Plavix, uh, clopidogrel. This is the second most prescribed drug. And only recently has it been realized that about a third of the people who take that drug get no benefit from it. Plavix is a prodrug. You take it as a pill, but your body has to convert it in the liver into its active form. Turns out about a third of us don't have enough of the enzyme that does that conversion to get any benefit from the drug. And we've recently discovered what that is. Most of it is attributable to a gene called CYP2C19. You can test for that. And ideally now, somebody who has the version of that that isn't going to give benefit should get a different drug instead of this one because they're not going to have the protection against stroke and heart attack that the drug is supposed to provide. And the FDA, looking at this, has now added a black box warning to the label uh, to tell physicians that they should be cognizant of this and should be taking steps to be sure that they're not giving a drug to people that aren't going to be helped by it. So we have discovery of new variations that play a role in predicting risk. If you are interested now, you can have your DNA tested for about $300 and find out what you're at risk for, although it's early days for that. We have this ability to make predictions about drug responses. And we have this whole new wonderful array of new drug targets that need to be pursued. NIH has gotten much more engaged in the therapeutic part of this recently. There are more drug targets here than the private sector can possibly follow up on. And we have more and more academic investigators who have gotten interested and empowered in playing an important role in the front end of that drug development pipeline. And in fact, there is a piece of the health care reform bill uh, that asks NIH to take an even more aggressive role in that therapeutic development process, and we welcome that because this is certainly the time where that sort of thing can happen. If you're looking for something you can do right now, if you're interested in personalized medicine, there is a genetic test that we all have access to that's free, and it's called your family medical history. But it is rarely, I think, effectively used in prevention, and oftentimes because it's just not possible in a busy practitioner's office to collect the information and then begin to make some advice possible for that individual about what they might want to do. Well, there's a tool that has been put together uh, by the Genome Institute and the Surgeon General. And if you go to this particular uh, website, you can find out how to upload all of your own family medical history into this uh, privacy-protected site. It allows you then to print out in a standard medical pedigree format your family history and then take that to your provider then they don't have to spend the time dragging the information out of you, and you'll have a chance to do it at your own pace and call up Aunt Edna and find out what really happened to Uncle George because sometimes that's not immediately obvious, and then use that as starting a conversation for how prevention could be practiced more individualized for you based on your family history because a lot of your DNA risks may in fact be apparent by a careful examination of your first and second degree relatives. 
Well, let me finish with just a little bit of a thought experiment here, uh, just because it's Saturday morning and we don't have to be too serious. Let's talk about a future dream, and we're going to talk about Rhonda. Help me, Rhonda. So Rhonda's story, uh, we're going to fast forward now uh, to 2018, and we're going to imagine what Rhonda might be doing as far as trying to keep herself healthy. So Rhonda's just turned 21, and uh, she's realized that maybe she isn't going to live forever after all, and uh, it might be a good idea to begin to think about her own medical history and her own care. So she finds out about this Surgeon General's family history tool, and she fills it out and finds out, yeah, there were some uncles with early heart disease. She was never quite sure what happened to them. So she goes to her health care provider, who fortunately had kept up, and Steve will tell us how we're going to make sure that happens in a little bit. The provider says, oh, well, let's just sequence your genome. It's only $500 now. You only have to do it once, put it in your medical record. Well, she's a little worried about whether that might lead to genetic discrimination, but fortunately, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act was signed into law in 2008. And so at least as far as health insurance and workplace discrimination, Rhonda doesn't have to worry. That is against the law. So she has her genome sequenced, and she's found to have uh, three gene variants that are, in fact, high risk, probably connected with those uncles, and her heart attack risk is about fourfold elevated. Okay, well, that's probably not what she wanted to hear, but now she has the information. She's empowered to act on it, and so she and her provider design a program of prevention based on diet, exercise, and medication that was precisely targeted for her. This is individualized, personalized medicine, not the one-size-fits-all approach. So she's pretty motivated. She's got that information. She acts on it. She does well till age 75. Ah, uh, well, then she develops some left arm pain that she assumes is due to gardening, but she's wearing a smart shirt at the time, which uh, maybe all of us will be, which uh, transmits her irregular heartbeats to her care provider, who notices, uh, yeah, something's wrong here. Uh, knowing the higher risk an incipient heart attack is diagnosed, uh, she is uh, immediately treated with reference to her genome sequence, choosing the right drugs for her. She survives and is alive and well in the 22nd century. What a great outcome for Rhonda. But could that dream actually become a nightmare? Can we be confident that all of those things will happen for Rhonda or for you and me? Let's consider an alternative scenario. Rhonda's story gone wrong. Rhonda never learns about her family history because educational efforts to reach out to the public and health care providers never got off the ground. The funds weren't available. Rhonda's provider thought genetics was just that irrelevant stuff that they do in fancy schmancy medical centers like the University of Virginia, and it wasn't really relevant uh, to his practice. So she heard about genome sequencing because there was some stuff about that, but her brother actually went through this and lost his life insurance, uh, for which there was no protection, so she said, nah, I'm not going to do that. So without that information and sort of considering that there wasn't much motivation for her to do anything about her own health, she ate an unhealthy diet, gained weight, developed high blood pressure. Well, she went to see the doc, but unfortunately, all those things that might have allowed individual drug prescribing to be more effective uh, didn't actually happen, the research didn't get done, and even the things that were known about were not reimbursed, uh, so nobody would pay for the tests. So, Rhonda was given sort of the best guess drug. Her hypertension causes a hypersensitivity reaction. She gets a bad skin rash. She says nuts to this and stops treatment. Decides the doctors don't know what they're doing anyway. 
10 years of uncontrolled hypertension. Now she gets left arm pain, not at age 75, but at age 50. Smart shirts weren't reimbursed. Provider says, eh, 50-year-old woman, musculoskeletal, uh, you should rest yourself. She arrives in the ER a few hours later in shock. Absence of any information prevented optimum choice of therapy. Rhonda dies in the ER, having missed out on fully half of her life potential. What a sad story. And I'm not going to tell you that I could be absolutely confident which of these scenarios is most likely for Rhonda. But Rhonda is you, and Rhonda is me, and we have a great opportunity here to make that first story come true. So the essential goal of personalized medicine can be distilled down to just two words. Save Rhonda. <laughs> and that's the job of all of us. And that's really what medical research aims to try to do. But it's going to take all of this connection uh, with the political system, with the funding situation for research, uh, with our healthcare system being able to provide the kind of prevention that everybody deserves but often don't get, and with education of the public uh, and of healthcare providers. So maybe we'll end up with something that looks like this at some point, but hopefully the physician won't be going, I don't know, what do you think? <laughs> hopefully we'll be at a point where we will really be empowered by knowing our own DNA instruction book in ways that will transform the practice of medicine. Thank you very much. Okay, Marge Sidebottom is going to save all of us in addition to Rhonda. <laughs> Thank you. Um, not really. <laughs> You're going to save yourselves. But um, I'm the operations person, so I'm delighted to be a part of this esteemed panel, but recognize that um, I'm used to planning the operations, and so I want to talk to you about how we, in fact, worked at the University of Virginia to um, mitigate and prepare and respond for any kind of a pandemic influenza. So I have to give um, credit to the bird flu or the avian flu um, that many of us were planning for in uh, the early 2000. 2005, 2000, some of us have been watching that for a number of years and making some plans. Um, Mr. Sandridge had asked a number of us in June of 2006 to begin to come together as specific groups to plan for such an event. We had faculty and staff um, representation somebody from academic affairs that would take a look at how our operations would continue. We had health and infection control, which happened to be my responsibility at the time because I was at the health system um, for 20 years prior to my, my um, present appointment. We had the legal office involved always to understand what um, the rules and regulations were and what we would need to be doing. Our administration was heavily involved as were student support services, and of course, communications, communications, communications. There's never enough in any kind of an incident, either before, after, or during, um, to make sure that we have all the lessons learned um, about what we're dealing with. So 
when I looked at what I was going to do today, I had a presentation I worked up, and I thought, well, I'm going to run through this one more time. And then I looked at it, and I thought, I will never be able to do this in the time allotted. I'm going to have to just scrap the whole thing. And mercifully, I found this wonderful sheet that I had written that started to be the top 10 things I had to focus on for this planning. And of course, it grew from 10 to 15 to 18. But I want to kind of go down that list for you, and I think it will be more, probably more interesting than, um, because you'll see the thought process involved. So my very first thing was, what did we do for H5N1? What do we have in place? Where are our holes that we need to plug the gap? What additional information do we have? Who's new? Who needs to be brought up to speed? How can we make sure that everybody understands university-wide what we have to do to prepare and respond for this? I knew there were experts here, and I wanted to find them and connect with them. Dr. Fred Hayden had been a wonderful colleague for a number of years, and so I immediately reached out to him. He had been working with WHO on this very project, and I wanted to understand what he had been doing, understand where we were with the WHO. Certainly, we looked at the CDC. We had lots of good connections. And the university is rich with those wonderful connections from the medical establishment. So we had that and those experts. Our local Virginia um, Department of Health, as well as our um, Thomas Jefferson Health District, was blessed with folks that understood our challenges as institutions of higher education. And so we wanted to partner with them and make sure we were, were all on the same page. Because this is a public health emergency, we aren't really in charge. And I had to keep reminding those folks that I was working with, we're not in charge of this. We're in charge of our response to this public health emergency. So we have to do what we can within the parameters that we have. So finding those experts and staying informed on a regular basis was one of the top priorities for me and for my team. The team is the critical incident management team. It's a very broad-reaching group across the university, and you can look them up on the web page. Um, look at the critical incident management team. Uh, look at the critical incident management plan. It will show you the things that we are actually planned on doing and working with. The um, critical incident management team has both a small team and then an extended team. So we began with the extended team because I wanted everybody to understand this was going to be a broad-reaching issue and we needed to look at it um, university-wide. I wanted to remember the audience. Um, I'd been in the health system for a number of years, 20-some years, and so I understood the language, but I was pretty sure my colleagues didn't understand the language, and I wanted to make sure that we got that language to be boiled down to what was reasonable for the entire academic community while still making sure that the health system had the very defined knowledge that they needed at the time 
to treat those that were being um, seen. I wanted to make sure we monitored daily, that we tracked cases, both in student health, in the hospital, in the community, and I wanted to make sure that we had that information available on a regular basis. The health system was wonderful in this. We had a previously designed committee called the Emerging Diseases Committee. It was first the Bioterrorism Committee, then it was another committee. It just kept changing names, and while I was down there, we finally decided it's just emerging diseases. So let's take a look at emerging diseases and what do we need to be doing in order to respond appropriately. Wanted to pull them together um, and understand how we could actually, as a university, work on, um, on this issue. I needed to understand the inventory that we had on hand. These are in no particular order. This was just a stream of consciousness for me. Um, inventory on hand, we'd need masks, we'd need gowns, we'd need gloves, we'd need antibiotics for secondary infections, we'd need influenza vaccine, both for seasonal influenza, because if you hadn't gotten that seasonal flu shot, we wanted to make sure you did it now. Um, so you were protected there, and we needed to make sure that, that folks understood that that was an important piece of them working here at the university. I wanted to make sure that <clears throat> student health and employee health had all of the information that was necessary to their positive outcomes in their areas. And I wanted to look internally to areas of extra hand-washing needs. What kinds of things did we need to put in place where dining services was, where the mail rooms were in the, in the different dormitories? Um, if we were having picnics um, outside, can we make sure we have some hand gel out there? Where were all of the areas, as well as the John Paul Jones Arena and all of the events that we might have, where could we make sure that we had additional, um, <clears throat> additional supplies? Those areas of large gathering were a particular concern for me. As things began to heat up in the spring, um, we faced graduation, and our provost did send me a note and say, what will happen if we have to cancel graduation? Well, that thought never really occurred to us, but we had planned for it. We were going to figure out a way to ensure that graduation in some form was going to occur. So summer camps were scheduled, both sports and enrichment camps. We had concerts in the John Paul Jones Arena. We had orientation for new students coming in and their families. We had football to plan for for the fall. That was an onerous job with people coming in from all areas um, and making sure that we had information for them so that they could take some personal responsibility for their own safety. And then we had parents, parents, parents. I'm one from UVA, so I could know that we were going to be very concerned about our students. And we wanted to make sure that the university had in place everything that it needed to ensure the safety of our students, whether they were ill or whether they were trying to go to class 
we wanted to make sure that we had things in place for them. <clears throat> we need to understand isolation, quarantine, our partners in education. The vendors, vendors, vendors came out of the woodwork. I had to make sure that I could respond to them appropriately. The supply and demand, the lack of vaccine, um, the lack of dates for immunization that we could actually hang our hat on was important. Students and faculty and the community were all a part of that process. I wanted to make sure we informed, we didn't inflame, and we did that on a regular basis. So we were, uh, had excellent opportunities to teach personal responsibility and promote lifelong skills. There were hands around our worldwide community. While we recognized here we had ships abroad, we had students traveling abroad, we had disease that we were tracking worldwide and getting the right information to them. We had regular communication. We assessed times of greatest vulnerabilities and we tried to plan appropriately. I can say that I valued everybody's input. That's very difficult to say, but it's a very important thing for me. Um, I valued each question. I tried to answer things honestly with the information that we all had at the moment, and I tried to thank our associate, associates on a regular basis. My final thought for all of this is that um, this was a difficult, uh, difficult situation to, to work with. I am always proud to be here uh, at the University of Virginia, but I am never more proud than when there is something like this that pulls everybody together and you see people come out of the woodwork and give you their very, very best. So thanking them and remembering that the great aim of education is not knowledge but action. It's not a Jefferson quote, but I, it's attributed to, to Herbert Spencer, and it's one that I use frequently. Thank you. And Dean Dukoski. I'm the uh, new dean of the School of Medicine. Uh, I've been here about a year and a half. Uh, in my first month, I went over to, uh, I was sent up to New Cabell Hall to meet with people who was trying to organize a neuroscience research group with across grounds. And I kept walking around in here, looking at the floors and seeing that the tile was at least from the 30s and thought, well, I still must be in old Cabell Hall uh, because this is really old. And that's when uh, the provost told me that uh, it isn't really old around here unless it's before 1849. Um, let's see if I can... Okay. Right, so I was asked to talk in 10 minutes about medical education. Uh, that's almost as horrific as the uh, test that uh, Dr. Collins was given. And... Um, what I would talk about is, what I thought I would do is talk about the continuum of medical education. Uh, we make a great deal of the fact that in the early 1900s, uh, Flexner and his report uh, cleared out a lot of medical schools that uh, were <clears throat> in the country only to make money and didn't train people very well. Um, and that was probably the largest up to that time change in medical education in the United States uh, in history. 
And we're now in the middle of what is the second largest change, and this will change things forever. The drivers for changing medical education are uh, the massive amounts of new technology and the increasing rate of uh, our acquisition of that was, uh, I think, uh, made real by the advances in our ability to do um, uh, sequencing uh, incredibly quickly. Patient safety considerations and the publicity as well as the expense and the personal suffering focus on quality um, and uh, the rates of knowledge turnover, which I'll get back to, and then a lot of new knowledge on education itself and how our students learn. Virtually every one of these things is under major change as well as major research. So <coughs> um, I thought I would give you the really big picture of how you make a med student, uh, or actually how you, you make a certified full physician. You educate them in pre uh, medical classes, which we are less and less enamored of. We're looking much more for complete students as opposed to uh, uh, biochemistry majors who never left the lab. Uh, and then they go into what we uh, can instantly capture in our mind's eye by letters of abbreviation. So uh, if you talk to people in education, and I'll go through these uh, briefly with a little bit more explanation, you go through the MCATs, you're a UME, you take the USMLE, uh, you become a GME. When you finish, you have to get your certification. Then you will continue your CME. And finally, uh, and this is actually the newest cusp, you'll go to MOC uh, to uh, maintenance of certification. So MCAT, uh, most people know about. Uh, Pre-medical education, though, is something that is changing amazingly. Uh, when uh, I was uh, getting prepared for medical school, it was all about uh, biology, organic chemistry, physics, calculus uh, and uh, take some arts courses because we want you to be a well-rounded physician. Now the curriculum changes uh, emphasize uh, population statistics, molecular biology, uh, critical thinking skills, team-based learning, uh, and uh, importantly actually a, a switch predominantly from looking at a, uh, uh, a transcript. Did the student take biostatistics or stat uh, statistical design or did they take calculus the former is probably more valuable to us in teaching medical students now than the latter. The MCAT, the Medical College Aptitude Test, uh, which had been a standard for a long time, is now in the process of changing to assess better the kinds of things that medical students should know, the kinds of things that prepare people for learning. And then in undergraduate medical education, where amazing changes are occurring, sorry, don't rest on that, where amazing changes are occurring, it's all about integration. We, we teach less and less basic science in isolation, as I'll show you in a minute. Uh, it's much more about team-based learning because that's how increasingly we will take care of patients in the future, about critical thinking, and about uh, information management, something that we'll, I'm sure, touch on uh, during the discussion. It also has to be culturally sensitive. Uh, we now are embarking here at UVA on a major effort in interprofessional education, that is having doctors work with nurses, the people who they really have to be able to understand and work with, especially when we found out that nurses sort of think they knew what doctors do, but they're not exactly sure, but doctors of course are sure of everything and they're sure they know what nurses do and they, and they don't. Uh, we found that out when we asked them, well tell us what nurses do. And so now we have a big program in trying to educate our medical students about what nurses do by putting them with the nurses. It's been absolutely terrific. Um, and then increasingly with technology, the use of simulators, and I'll touch base on that again, not just simulated patients, which we have used for a long time, someone who we, we uh, skill in answering questions as if they had migraines or episodic gallbladder disease, but now 
uh, real-life simulation with electronic control of things that let us work on uh, dummies rather than on real humans. The era of, uh, with procedures, see one, do one, teach one is over, uh, and uh, no one will get to the bedside now unless they have competency-based approval that they know how to do what it is that we are expecting them to do. And the newest goal, instead of once you're done with your exam, you're done, uh, is what's called lifelong learning, where you will continuously learn over time and you will continuously prove that you're up to it uh, as far as performance is concerned. We also have uh, uh, more uh, increasingly uh, dual degree programs. It's a very proud moment out on the lawn that we had last week uh, uh, when uh, we had our students stand up with um, uh, the uh, law students uh, and with the uh, business school as the MD-MBAs got up, the MD-MPHs uh, who got up with the college in addition to their medical degree. In part, that is because we have a dual role, uh, that of training researchers for the future as well as uh, physicians to care for the public, but it also involves the importance of understanding systems and how these different things can be brought together most efficiently. Questions for the future for undergraduate medical education much of the new curriculum, which I'll touch on very briefly, has to do with the fact that the LCME, the licensing board for medical schools, uh, requires changes in curricula, which are going to affect every medical school in the country. And they've given yellow cards, for those of you who uh, play soccer, to a number of schools around the country looking at their curricula and saying, this curriculum is not going to pass uh, unless you change it. And because it takes time and lots of arguments to change curricula, uh, it will take a while to do it. Our curricula is on time. Uh, and when you look at ours or many of the others, one of the big questions that's come up, especially in, need of the doc in view of the doctor shortage, is should we do away essentially with the fourth year of medical school, do much more competency-based accumulation of milestones, and only have the fourth year of medical school for people who need to consolidate in some fashion and not necessarily have everybody do four years of medical school? Could you just demonstrate competencies in various areas and essentially areas and essentially graduate early? And finally, uh, for the top 60 or 70 medical schools who do this routinely, how would you track researchers through? And how can you make more efficient a system that already is a dauntingly complex and long procedure, even if you are not a physician but just are trying to learn to be a researcher? Well, this is one of our answers. This is the new Claude Moore Medical Education Building, which is going up uh, across the street over here. Not um, accidentally, uh, across the street from this is the new uh, nursing uh, education building uh, in hopes that we can increase our medical education, our interprofessional education that way. Uh, the insides of this building are about as high tech as it gets, and one of the major things that are going in there are a simulated emergency room, uh, complete with a, an ambulance entrance to be able to uh, demonstrate uh, or practice hazmat and uh, environmental exposures and other kinds of uh, mass population disasters. A, uh, a simulated ICU, which is what this is, a simulated OR, operating room, and a simulated labor and delivery suite, all of which have the same instrumentation as the real ones, uh, but the, uh, they're not in yet. The uh, electronically controlled uh, uh, dummies uh, will be uh, there for the students to work on, and you cannot see the two-way windows, but there are two-way windows where performance can be matched. This is, uh, can be watched. This is not only for our students, this is also for residents and for physicians who wish to come back. Uh, people have said that uh, m academic medical centers are the most complex organizations in the country. Uh, they may not be, uh, but I would not want to try and uh, try to uh, approach mastery of a system more complicated than the one we have. And in addition to the fact that all of our educational lines are changing, so too are all of the rewards, uh, 
other than that of being with a patient and, and uh, working in research, and all of the motivations as well as all the lines of monetary input that makes this all go. Um, if you try to get out beyond medical school, you go to the USMLE, the medical licensing exam. This traditionally, uh, when all of us took this exam, was uh, uh, three steps. Step one, step two, step three. Step one was all basic science. Step two was the start of clinical. Step three, purely clinical. Now we will go to more where there's virtually no basic science alone. It will all be in the context of clinical work. Graduate medical education was transformed several years ago when it, we limited residents and interns to an 80-hour work week. Still uh, very, very uh, controversial, but with all sorts of things to learn in addition to the facts. And now probably the biggest change for us who just go to see our physicians, increasing requirements for continuing medical education, or CME, whereby you have to demonstrate that you continue to go to courses and learn things, and this has now been reflected in certification. For people of a certain age, like Dr. Uh, uh, Garson, you took your examinations once to be certified in your field and you were done for life. It was what was called lifelong certification. In the 90s, that ended for virtually every specialty and now you have to either take a new exam every 10 years or every seven, depending on your specialty. And last week, the American Academy of Pediatrics announced, or the American Board of Pediatrics announced that they would no longer have formal examinations every 10 years. Uh, that they would expect you to continuously learn and they will set up the guidelines for how you have to pass an examination every X years uh, to maintain your certification in the field. At some point, the state's medical licensure will be linked to your certification to try and assure as part of a quality effort that every physician is up to date on what they know. And finally, how do we do all this? This is a startling slide and you've probably seen different ones of this and basically, although the, the lines did not show up, the growth of academic medical centers in the, uh, starting in the 80s and moving up to the present day have been vastly fueled in their mission by that very large gray on the screen increase in clinical income that helps fuel their budget. At the University of Virginia, like many schools, 50% of our um, uh, budget is, is from clinical care provided by the School of Medicine, by the physicians in the School of Medicine, by the hospital. 30% by research and the others by endowment, tuition, uh, and uh, an increasingly shrinking uh, state allocation. So as all of the things that uh, Bill Kaur showed us uh, change, uh, as monetary things shift, uh, as we get more and more complex about how we learn and the kinds of instrumentation we need to teach our students, one of the questions will be how do we balance that mission of teaching students, teaching for research, ending up with a finished product in research, in basic research, clinical research, and clinical patient care with quality, and still be able to afford to provide these kinds of resources to the community. Uh, so as we're changing all of the uh, pedagogy, all of the things that we do that we teach and train people with, we're also going to have some major looks into how do we finance this over time, how do we provide value, and how do we make sure that we do not decrease the number of physicians and researchers that we need at a time when we will need them more than ever. Thanks very much. So my first night of pediatric cardiology fellowship, I met a five-year-old girl named Ginny, and I met her under probably the worst of all circumstances in the recovery room after heart surgery. 
and by the end of the night she had rested three times. I had gone back and forth to see her parents and grandparents three times. And what that tends to do for a first night trainee is create bonding between parents, grandparents, physician, and ultimately a child. And over the next 14 years, we all bonded together. I went to her grammar school graduation. I went to her high school graduation. She developed a heart rhythm problem that we had pretty well controlled on a pretty expensive medicine. And at the age of 19 and a half on a Sunday morning, I got the dreaded call from her mother that she had found her dead in bed. And as we tried to recreate what happened, after her Medicaid ran out at the age of 19, she had never refilled her prescription. And as best we could tell, my patient, my first patient, died because of a lack of health care coverage and a government program that had provided perfectly for her. And when it ran out at the age of 19, she died. Now, if you don't think that got my attention and that I became pretty darn dedicated to health care coverage, I did. And behind the scenes, uh, have worked pretty hard over several years to see if we couldn't do a whole lot better for health care coverage. And so you can imagine that the Accountable Care Act that Bill Corr talked about was absolutely music to my ears. And as one does when one sees one problem not perfectly solved but addressed, one then says, okay, what's next? So I switched from becoming very interested in coverage, which is in fact do you have an insurance plan of some kind, to access, which means can you see somebody at the right time at the right place? So access and coverage are different things. And it turns out that the greatest determinant in access to care in the United States and throughout the world is, in fact, workforce. And so I became very interested and have worked pretty closely with now two governors in Virginia on workforce in Virginia, and have come, this is the sort of beginning and end on this one slide, which is a new delivery model is needed because we're not going to be able to do it the way we're doing it. We have about a shortage of 15,000 physicians, and 20% of people in the United States are in what's known as a health professions shortage area, which means there is less than one per 3,000, one physician per 3,000 people. You hear a lot about a shortage of generalist physicians. There is, but there is also a shortage in specialty physicians. Uh, imagine nobody in this room except me is getting older. Uh, I understand that. But imagine as we get older uh, and thank goodness that, that we're going to save Rhonda, which is great, but certain of us are going to get older, and uh, as we get older, we're going to need specialists as well. So there are 12 specialty societies that have each determined that there is a current shortage. So it is not one versus the other. It is there is a shortage in virtually all areas of medicine and nursing. 
Now, why is that? Okay, we're getting older. We're living longer. Everybody in the United States wants white teeth. This is not a comment about dentists. This is a comment about how we all want everything right now. Now, the newly insured, interestingly, that are coming out of the Accountable Care Act, Massachusetts has already experienced what happens when you take a whole bunch of people who are newly insured and say, isn't this good, you now have an insurance card. Well, Massachusetts four years ago created their own health care reform, and with a 75% reduction in the uninsured, the wait to see an internist increased from 33 to 52 days. So this is access. We now have increasing coverage, and you read about this probably at least once a week. Somebody in one of the large newspapers is asking the question, what are we going to do? The the concentration seems to be on primary care. We've got to have more primary care docs. We do, but we probably also need other caretakers as well. That's demand. Supply. Well, guess what? In 1985, 25% of doctors were 50 years old. Now, 50% of doctors are 50 years old. The retirement rate is increasing, and as long as the Dow stays below $11,000, you know, docs are fine. Um, You know, we'll, we'll be fine. But there was, in fact, about eight years ago, a study that came out that when, and this was when the Dow was was about 8,000, when the Dow hit 10,000, about 25% of physicians said they were going to retire. So this is a not, unfortunately, facetious issue that when their retirement income becomes such that they can afford to, physicians are going to retire. Interestingly, for the very first time last year, graduating medical students now rank lifestyle over income in what's important to them. Now, I happen to think that's terrific. There's, that means there's going to be more of a benefit. They're going to be with their patients more. They're going to think more about their patients, but they are going to go home at 5 o'clock. And so there is an issue that we are going to see, and this is not just, you know, people talk about today a 19% difference in hours between men and women. The projections are within five to six years, those are going to equalize, and it's not men working more. So we're going to have men equal women, but they're going to be working less hours. So physician supply is going to go down. Now, we've got an interesting thing with productivity where you'd say, okay, um, is there, are doctors doing too much? Could we, in fact, say, okay, if doctors did less things that weren't necessary, they would have more time to do things that were necessary. And that's probably the most cogent argument to say we we don't have as much of a physician shortage as we think. What I'm getting at here is that there is, across the United States, about a 400% variation in the rate of things like coronary artery bypass surgery. So in Miami, Florida, the rate per 100,000 of coronary bypass surgery is four times the rate in Salem, Oregon. You might say, gee, what if the intensity of services was reduced in Miami to equal that in Salem, Oregon? Those are some of the arguments. Those are not perfect statistics. Those are 
the statistics that are out there, but they're not perfect because, in fact, you'd think, well, maybe people in Miami are older, are sicker, and the adjustment is not perfect. The point, on the other hand, is that there are doctors in the United States that do things that they have no business doing um, for a number of reasons. One, hopefully the, the most important being they're worried about the patient. But there are other reasons, including income, including malpractice, and so we've got a lot to work on with the difference in intensity of services. So if we add all this up, there's around 100,000 physician shortage, which would require every school to double its graduates for the next six years. Well, that's not about to happen. Similar problems with nurses. And so any reasonable increase in the number of docs and nurses, any reasonable increase, is not going to solve the problem with access. And so what we all are now starting to believe is, yes, we need more doctors, yes, we need more nurses, but we also need a new model of delivery. You've heard with virtually every speaker today the word team. And so you'll hear it again. The issue here is how can we create a team that works better and better and leveraging each to their highest capacity. Now, people don't normally consider the patient as part of the healthcare team. Well, guess what? If you then say, oh, gee, there are patients, doctors, nurses, that becomes pretty important. If we can educate patients and grab them and say, you know what, you're one of us, you're part of the healthcare team, that's pretty important. Now, there is an emerging group of people known as community health workers that work between patients and nurses and physicians, one program of which we are piloting here known as the Grand Aids. And in fact, the Grand Aids has an E because the Johnson & Johnson people called me up and said, that sounds too much like Band-Aids. And they said, we can either call you and be nice or send you a very nasty letter would you please add an E to Grand-Aids? And so Grand-Aids now has an E. But in fact, we are training lay grandparents to provide very simple primary care with supervision by doctors and nurses. 27% of children and 20% of adults in the UVA emergency department could have been taken care of by a Grand-Aid last year. So it is those kinds of programs that I think we're going to, whether it's Grand Aids or other ways of leveraging patients, community health workers, leveraging nurses to the highest amount where they can to their licensure, and then leaving physicians available to do the most important things that physicians only can do. We're going to have shortages, but I think they, we've, we've got ways of addressing them other than tripling the number of medical students. So thank you very much, and I'm glad to be here with you. We should have three hours. We have 12 minutes. Um, please, there are microphones, I believe, at the at the sort of halfway up and most of the way down. Um, please come to the microphones, ask any question you want. 
um, and we're here for you. Please tell us who you are and what your class was. I'm Mary Ann Nolan. I was president of the nursing school in 1970, so there were undergraduate women here at that time. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have a couple of comments. I appreciate, uh, especially like what you were saying about the grand aides as a granny nanny to four um, full time. Um, there is a good bit you could do at home, and I've kept all four of them off antibiotics for the last four years. But um, I worked in a free clinic for a number of years, and so this, there was access. It was free access. How does the new bill address making people take their medicines when it's free and <coughs> theirs for the taking? How do you help people who are too proud to come get it because it's free? And then there were those who were unwilling to qualify for for our services because they were afraid we would give the information to the government. We did not receive government money, so we didn't give that information. So those are a few things that I have a little concern about with the new health care bill because I think there's going to need to be tremendous education to those who are fearful of medicine, who um, don't have the money to give their kids the proper foods, nor the education to know what proper foods to give to address the obes obesity issue in children. That felt like 16 and a half questions. <laughs> Each one of them important, but maybe we'll let Bill Corr start the ball rolling. In terms of getting patients to comply, I'll leave that to these guys because I think, and maybe that's a good place for the grand aides because it's the kind of thing that keeps patients out of the healthcare system if they comply with the orders. So I think as far as the law can go is, and you recognize this, is to make sure that people have access, they have insurance, and then we've got to get good patient compliance from working as a team, as Tim was talking about. And on the other issue of privacy, uh, there is no question that there is a broad recognition that this is absolutely crucial going forward. And it's going to be amplified by the expansion of electronic health records, which is a major goal, I think, certainly of this administration, and I think of the medical community, um, the health community, that so much better care can be rendered if, if all of your providers have access to the same electronic health record. So, but in doing that, and it was raised in a number of the slides, privacy is an absolutely crucial issue. If people don't believe their information is safe, we're, we're going to have many, many more problems. So we've got to work at this. We need everybody's co you know, under, uh, cooperation. But certainly the Congress and the administration recognize it's crucial, and the laws will be there to protect the privacy, and now we've got to execute on them. Francis? I think Bill. Uh, nicely stated uh, a number of the important issues that the Affordable Care Act uh, already has addressed and what has to follow after that. Um, I think, because I'm the research guy, I will say we also have an opportunity uh, by carefully controlled research studies to try to understand in various populations uh, what are the incentives that are most effective for achieving compliance and so that we aren't just going down a path of thinking we know what works without actually testing it. And certainly the NIH has gotten much more involved in that kind of implementation research than we have been in the past, and I think we'll be called upon to do even more of it in the future. 
Yes, sir. Hi. Uh, my name is Bob Spindell. I'm class of uh, 1965. And my class, uh, we're starting to worry about, or we're in Medicare, and the class of 1970 will soon be, be there. I have a, a mathematical problem that maybe you could help me with. We have uh, huge numbers of baby boomers that are coming into Medicare. Uh, we have a huge number of new people with the, medic with the recent Health Care Act uh, assessing uh, medical care. And as we just learned a few minutes ago, we're having a tremendous shortage of doctors and nurses. And in addition, we're uh, going to take $500, million, $500 billion to a trillion dollars out of Medicare. Uh, how does Medicare become better because of all this? Guess that's you. Yes, <laughs> it is. Um, let me just give you a couple of facts. The Congressional Budget Office uh, projects that Medicare premiums, as a result of this law, will be $200 a person lower about 10 years out than they, than they would have otherwise been. So in terms of individual cost sharing and, and individual costs, we're, we're making progress in terms of keeping down your costs. Um, the savings that people talk about that are coming in the Medicare program, let me give you two examples of where they come from. Now we compensate hospitals. Um, we provide extra revenue to hospitals in the Medicare program when they take care of a lot of lower-income people who don't have insurance. It's uncompensated care. Once everyone is covered, Medicare will no longer need to be making uncompensated care payments. There will be some, because you saw at least in one of the charts that I had, that there will continue to be some uninsured. But those patients will now, hospitals will now be reimbursed for those patients, because they'll be in an insurance plan or Medicare or Medicaid. So there's a large part of that $500 billion is coming from reducing what are now payments for uncompensated care. There's another program you probably are aware of it called the Medicare Advantage Program about um, I think about 30% of Medicare beneficiaries are enrolled in insurance plans where the insurance company is responsible for delivering all of the Medicare benefits. Medicare Advantage plans are paid for each Medicare enrollee $1,000 more every year than is paid out for the Medicare beneficiaries who are not in Medicare Advantage plans. Over time, the legislation removes that extra payment to Medicare plans. The previous administration set this up because they wanted more private insurance involvement in the Medicare program, and they did it by paying them more than would cost for the same Medicare beneficiary. So when we talk about what happens to Medicare, the guaranteed benefits remain if you're in a Medicare Advantage plan. Over time, um, over several years, that extra payment will come down. So those are two examples of where the savings come from, but they do not reduce the guarantee of benefits that Medicare beneficiaries do not now have. And, and so the, uh, uh, some people are talking about possible rationing and things along that line. If uh, it costs $100,000 to keep you alive another month or so or two, uh, they're not going to um, stop the chemotherapy or expenses along that line? There's no basis for those accusations. It's the part of politics that's 
sort of nasty these days. It's the part of the misinformation that has gone on. It simply isn't accurate. There are no death panels. You know, there's just nothing of the sort. Um, it was effective. It caused a lot of people to stand up and question what we were doing. And that's why I tried to lay out that all this expansion occurs through existing private insurance. The private insurance companies supported the Affordable Care Act because they're going to get more people covered. Uh, and you have Medicare and Medicaid expansions as well. Last question. Thank you. Um, my name is Aisha Langford. I'm class of 2000. Um, I'm currently working for the University of Michigan Health System, and I'm in a PhD program in public health there. And my question really, I guess, is for um, Steve and Francis. Now we're seeing more um, medical students wanting to pursue um, research tracks, so you're seeing more people pursuing the MD, PhD. And I'm wondering what programs or how medical schools are kind of addressing those students, because they have traditionally kind of been in a very unique place once they graduate because they're not purely clinical, kind of balancing the clinical and the research interest and what that means for tenure and their careers afterwards. Okay, so, I mean, we have an MD-PhD program. Uh, <clears throat> we have, uh, actually I had the numbers up, but I cut the slide short. I don't know that this has any kind of qualitative changes in the MD-PhD programs uh, as a result of the changes here. We segregate to uh, some extent unavoidably the times that our students are in the lab versus the time they're in class. And like most institutions, uh, you spend your first two years in medical school and then you move to the laboratory. And when you've completed your doctoral studies, you move back into class so that you are ready for your clinical training. And then most people, I think, do a postdoc when they're done. Uh, and it's a long way to go. We tell our students, and they do come in this way, if you don't have passion to do research and to do clinical or basic but clinically relevant translational research, don't do this. It is hard. It is long. It costs a lot of money. It costs us a great deal of money to support this, but it's every bit, in my view, a mission of our university uh, as training students to take care of the public is. Just training people to take care of the public puts us in a bad place 20 years down the line with things that we would never realize we were missing. So we watch them. Uh, we watch the programs carefully. We're challenged to make sure that we have enough uh, resources to make sure that we can train these students. We've gotten great support from NIH through the MSTP programs, the medical scientist training programs. Uh, but even those monies are not enough to train students properly. Uh, so we, um, we watch them carefully. They're one of the special groups of people who have complexities as opposed to greater value than the other physicians that we take care of. Uh, but we have watched this group even as we're prepared to move into the new building and to move to the new curriculum. In many ways, this will probably be better for them than the old traditional system as well. Francis, the final word on research. Well, I appreciate the question because clearly the opportunities in research are enormously exciting right now, uh, but they won't happen without the best and brightest deciding that this is how they want to spend their time pushing back those frontiers and making that happen all across the spectrum from very basic research to clinical. And clearly we have a problem in the way that we have been asking, particularly physicians, uh, to get involved in research, that it is a long and torturous and expensive pathway. And the consequences, when you look at how old people end up being before they get their first independent grant award uh, from NIH, is really quite disturbing. If you look at those curves, and this is not just for MDs and MD-PhDs, it's also for straight PhDs, the average age at first independent grant award is now 42. 
And clearly, that means an awful lot of years have gone by before that individual is given the chance to exercise their full creativity and go out and uh, really push back the frontiers. We have to do something about that. And I appreciate what Steve put forward in terms of some of the innovations that are going on here, and they're certainly being explored in other places as well, to shorten that very long training period, which clearly I think we have to look at as not just continuing to do what we always did, but trying to figure out why do we do it that way. And certainly there are many uh, discouraging aspects of going into research that I think, particularly for MDs, uh, cut back on the number of people who end up spending their time in research. A lot of it is the time involved, and of course, if you're a researcher, generally, at least the way things are right now, your income opportunities may be uh, somewhat diminished over if you're out there in full-time clinical practice. And many people having already acquired debts uh, of more than $100,000 uh, don't necessarily have the ability to just say, oh, well, it doesn't matter. We have increasing numbers of loan repayment programs uh, to try to make it possible for people who are willing to commit years to research to have some of those loans paid off, and some of them are pretty generous. And we have more and more places that I think are offering really exciting and innovative pathways uh, towards research that don't go down the traditional roles, but we need to keep looking at those. One of my goals is, as the NIH director is really to focus on this and to try to figure out how we can make a career in research both more attractive uh, and also something that you can accomplish in less than 20 years of training, because <laughs> we, are, we are clearly not optimum at the moment. But again, the good news is there are fantastic opportunities and, uh, in global health and all of these new technologies in, in clinical research. We just have to be sure we're putting out the welcome mat uh, for all of those bright minds that are wanting to come join us, because we need them. So each of you, Bill, Francis, Marge, Stephen, tremendous thanks for coming out on a Saturday. Alumni, thank you for coming.